Hey there, story people. Are you in the Chicagoland area and looking for a kick-butt New Year's party? Join Second Story for our rocking New Year's Eve bash at the Den Theater in Wicker Park. We have three excellent stories from Sean Sperling, Margaret Marion, and Laura Krugoff, including a piece timed exactly to the Midnight Countdown. Tickets include a champagne toast, and your first drink is on us. For more information, visit our website at secondstory.com. That's 2ndstory.com. See you there. This This is the Second Second Story Podcast. New Year's is, traditionally, one of my least favorite holidays. Usually I've had to work and I'm running around ensuring that others have a happy midnight toast while I'm trading only texts with those that I love. Those rare New Year's that I haven't had to work, I found myself running around party hopping, stressed and hairy, trying to fit a year's worth of fun into just one night. What I love about the holiday, though, is the resolutions. The opportunity for change, for self-betterment, for taking life in a new direction. New Year's resolutions are responsible for me having quit smoking, for me having joined a gym, for me starting to write every day. Today, on the Second Story Podcast, we explore three stories of people changing their approach and the consequences of their choices. From a woman learning to date again, to a man finding his courage in Spain, this is Change It Up, the Second Story New Year's 2014 podcast. We begin our podcast today with a story from Julia Borchards. Julia is a Second Story company member. She also writes for the Red Eye newspaper. With her story titled Fear of Falling, Second Story is proud to present Julia Borchards. I'm 50 feet in the air, walking across a steel beam with nothing to catch me if I fall. It's a few days after my 28th birthday. I'm a project manager for a structural steel company, recently uh, promoted from a position at the same company where the biggest danger was falling asleep at my desk reading blueprints. (laughs) This is my first job site. I already knew I was in over my head even before I discovered that I would have to go up and walk iron. I'm halfway across when I break the cardinal rule. You have to look ahead to make sure that you're placing one foot in front of the other on something solid and to keep an eye out for uh, trip hazards like bolt connectors or uneven welds. But sometimes your vision shifts and you accidentally look down, which I do, and which is a huge mistake. I freeze. I start breathing too fast, too deeply as cars and trucks whiz by 50 feet below on Harlem Avenue. I force my eyes back up to push away the image of a swirl of air sweeping up and catching me in its sway. There's nothing to grab onto to steady myself. I need to stop the adrenaline coursing through me so that I don't get dizzy and my knees don't buckle. So I slowly squeeze my fists and realize that my palms are sweating. If I wobble or slip, I won't be able to clutch onto the beam below me. My hands will just slide off. I try to swallow, and my throat closes up. The sky darkens, taking on a greenish cast. A mournful bird is squawking as the construction crane swings past with a bundle of sheet metal decking, so I don't hear the footsteps coming up behind me. But then I feel a light touch on the small of my back, and it's just enough to propel me forward, to make me realize that I can't just stand there forever, that I had already committed to this course, that moving forward is less dangerous than turning around and trying to go back. So, 
What was I even doing up there? The other course I had committed to was that I'd gotten married at 20, had a baby at 22, and was divorced by the time I was 23. For those of you who have kids, you know that when you look at that baby for the first time, a wave of protectiveness washes over you and you make a promise that you'll always be there and that you'll never, ever let them down. But then your ex-husband disappears along with any hope of child support and the electricity is about to get shut off and you've only got $11 for groceries that week and little by little your parenting standards start to slip. Your temper gets short, and sometimes you lash out from fear and exhaustion, even though none of this is your kid's fault, and you start to think the least you can do is try to keep the lights on. So you ask for a promotion, and because it's the late 80s and you're a woman, they can pay you half of what they'd have to pay a man, so you get the job. And despite the fact that it's dangerous and you're not really prepared, you're grateful to have a few more bucks every week. And you promise yourself that when it comes to child raising, you'll do better. But sometimes when you're alone on a Friday night because your kid's asleep and all your friends are out dancing, the uncertainty and the loneliness can crush you. And you think, how nice it might be to start dating again, to have a partner to help you face the world. And when David, the ironworker's foreman, walked up behind me on that beam, it seemed like his hand reaching out to help me was some kind of sign from the universe. I'd only frozen for a second. Maybe he saw my shoulder stiffen. Maybe he saw my foot pull up short. Maybe he just sensed the rhythm being interrupted. But in that moment, he did exactly the right thing, and it had felt like magic. That night, after the storm hits and blows over, I'm giving my five-year-old daughter a bath when my friend Mike who'd recently come out and changed his name to Michael with a Y and adopted a more flamboyant wardrobe, stops by on his way out to the club. His hair is gelled up into a pompadour faux hawk, and he's wearing sapphire blue leather pants and a matching sleeveless vest, along with lipstick and eyeliner. It's brave because this is the late 80s, long before Ellen and Will and Grace and Queer Eye for the Straight Guy. But since Michael is only 24, he can pull off this look. You look fabulous, I tell him, as he follows me back into the bathroom and sits down on the toilet lid. Well, of course I know how to dress, he says. I didn't spend all that time in the closet doing nothing. <laughs> Teresa quits splashing around in her bubbles long enough to say, Uncle Mike, your hair makes you look like Prince. Oh, good, he says. That's what I was going for. I'm hoping to run into my new crush at the club, and I'm hoping it makes him want to kiss me. Him, she asks. You like to kiss boys? I do. He looks over at me, eyebrows raised, as if to say, are you okay with this? I nod, and he says to her, Usually, men are attracted to women, but sometimes men like other men. I like other men. Your mom, she loves her some men. <laughs> You'll probably like men when you grow up, but sometimes women like other women. She looks confused, and I wonder if she's too young for this conversation, or maybe there's just too many options being thrown out for her to consider <laughs> all at once. <laughs> I dip the washcloth into the water and rinse the suds from her shoulders. Honey, you don't need to worry about it till you get older, I tell her. But no matter whom you decide you love, it will be okay. 
She nods. You can love everyone, she says. But right now, Mama, you don't love any boys, only me. That's true, Mike says. And if your mom doesn't stop wearing turtlenecks and work boots out in public, she isn't going to find anyone either. <laughs> Actually, I say, I'm kind of interested in someone at work. And I tell them what happened. Oh, my God, he saved your life, Mike says. But I'm back to thinking about my daughter and how her empathy makes her seem wiser than her five years. But before I can even really process this, the phone rings, and it's David. Hi, I say, trying to sound sexy. What are you doing right now, he says, and I catch my breath. But before I can respond, I discover that he's not calling for a date exactly. A mini tornado had swept in from Joliet and touched down at my job site. The wind catching underneath the bundles of sheet metal decking and whipping them across Harlem Avenue and down Irving Park Road. No one was hurt, but David and the other iron workers have already started collecting a hundred scattered sheets and moving them back to the site. I have to go count them and separate the damaged ones to file an insurance claim and a rush reorder for replacements. I'll come and get you, he says. If we go through it together, we'll have it done in no time. While this isn't quite the dream date I was hoping for, I'm dying to be alone with David. But it's too late to find a last-minute babysitter, and I can't leave my daughter alone with Michael. As much as I adore him, he's 24, and he's flighty, and his drinking habits sometimes display a complete lack of good judgment. Um, I have to bring my daughter, I tell David. You have a daughter, he says. I can't wait to meet her. Thirty minutes later, he pulls up in a giant white Buick. He's like a knight on a white horse, Michael breathes into my ear. Who cares if the horse is a Buick? <laughs> Where's the work truck? I ask David. Michael keeps whispering at me. I'll wait in the house for you to come back, he says. I can't go to the club yet anyway. If you're unfashionably early, it's impossible to make an entrance. David looks Michael up and down as he unlocks the doors. The work truck doesn't have seatbelts, he says, so since we're taking your daughter, I borrowed this from a guy at the site. Can you believe it's 10 years old, but it only has 11,000 miles? Doesn't he drive it back and forth to work every day, I ask, while I buckle Teresa into the back seat and kiss Michael goodbye. David pulls out into the street. He inherited the car from an aunt who died, he says. Typical old maid, just drove it to church on Sundays. I lean in towards David. Let me guess. Bingo on Wednesdays, the big night out, I start to say. But then I hear a clicking sound in the back seat. I whip around as Teresa's little face suddenly appears between our shoulders. Well, that was her life, she yells into the space between David and me. And if that's how she wanted to live it, that was up to her. And she snorts and folds her arms across her chest. Is she annoyed that I'm flirting? Or is she trying to assert her empathy and compassion into a conversation where everyone else is being judgmental? After my little bathtub speech about acceptance and tolerance, is she reacting to something that sounds to her like hypocrisy? David bursts out laughing and says, she's like five years old, going on 50. And Teresa leans back, buckles herself in, grins, and says, even though I'd kill myself if that's all I had to look forward to, and I start laughing because, just like that, she's five years old again. By the time we finish at the job site and get back to the house, Teresa is snoring. 
As we pull up to the curb, I turn around and raise myself up over the back seat to wake her up. But before I can bend down, David touches my arm. Let her sleep for a minute, he says. And then he totally makes my night by adding, would you like to go out with me for dinner this weekend? I want to turn back to look at him, but I don't want his hand to move from my arm. And so, still raised up and half leaning over the seat, I say, yes, yes I would. And I wonder if maybe this is my fairy tale after all. And I twist my neck so that I can see him, and he's looking up at me with these brown eyes, and I think, maybe he's going to kiss me. But suddenly, I hear footsteps running towards the car. The back door opens. I dive over the seat to protect Teresa, but then I see a flash of sapphire blue leather, and I realize it's Michael. He grins and says, here, let me take her back inside while you guys finish, you know, talking. She wakes up momentarily, but snuggles into Michael's shoulder when he picks her up. I look back at David, but he's staring straight ahead, tapping the steering wheel. He says, that guy's a good friend of yours? Yeah, I say. I've known him for 10 years. His sister's my best friend. David nods, but he doesn't kiss me. I'll call you, he says, before he drives off. And he does call, and we start dating. He treats me well. He's nice to Teresa, and she doesn't mind him. He's stubborn about some things, but I like that he's not the kind of boyfriend I'd have to take care of. When he tells me that he loves me, I realize that I might be falling in love with him, too. And so I invite him to a dinner party at Michael's apartment. Teresa and I have a great time, but as soon as we clear the plates, David asks if we can leave. As we walk back to my house, Teresa runs ahead, but David stops at his car and says, Do you think it's a good idea for Teresa to spend so much time with him? Don't be jealous, I say. She's known him all her life, but she likes you too. He shakes his head and frowns, leaning away from me. I don't think he's such a good influence on her. I start to say, yeah, I know, he drinks a little too much, but he's a good person when David cuts me off. That's not the problem, he says. What if she grows up and decides to be gay because she thinks it's all right? I freeze. Decides to be gay? As much as part of me wants to convince myself that he's an otherwise good man and that this is just one of those topics on which we disagree, Another part of me knows that he's set something in motion that I can't ignore. He's judging my decision-making and parenting skills and disrespecting Michael's sexual orientation as if it would infect my kid if, if I'm not careful. And he's not just disagreeing with me. He's challenging me to take a stand against my friend. Teresa is looking back at us from the porch, and suddenly I know that as much as I want to have a boyfriend, if I compromise on this, she will see right through me. I take one step away from David and pause. But he doesn't step forward. And so I turn and walk away for good. By the time I get to Teresa on the porch, I can hear him driving off. A few weeks later, I'm heading out to the job site. It's a Saturday morning, so I've got Teresa with me. We stop at the office first, and as I'm rummaging around for an adjustable hard hat for her, she runs off down the hall, and I can hear her stop short and say, Hi, when she discovers a coworker she hasn't yet met. 
It's a 21-year-old draftsman, Billy, who's tall and has dark, swept-back hair in a widow's peak and really red lips and pale skin that's probably even paler today because on Saturdays he usually shows up with a hangover. A minute later, she runs back to my desk. Mama, she says, did you know that you work with Dracula? (laughs) And I'm like, don't worry, honey, he might look like a vampire, but when she jumps in with, no, no, Mama, he's nice. She's open to everyone, I think, and this is something I need to protect. But as we're driving out to the job site where we may or may not run into David, it occurs to me that if it hadn't been for her, I might have stayed in that relationship and lost part of myself. And I realize that as much as we want to protect our kids, sometimes they protect us too. Driving on night, you could be a shadow. I sat down with Julia on the Second Story podcast couch to chat about her parenting techniques and the influence her own parents have on her life. Here's what she had to say. Uh, My father was an engineer who worked for Westinghouse, and he uh, went into marketing he traveled quite a bit and so he saw quite a bit of the world during a time when a lot of people weren't able to do that and my mother was like a southern girl from Tennessee who was raised Baptist and you know really liked her borders narrow what happened was when uh, I don't know she was maybe like in her late 30s early 40s she had a midlife crisis and while other women around that time were you know a lot of them were like going back to school or, you know, having affairs or whatever. Um, my mother became a Jehovah's Witness, oh. and which was really... That's a left turn. It was a huge left turn, and it was it, there was a lot of upheaval in our family about it. The thing that was interesting from both of them, even though they were very different in the way that they approached the world, mm-hmm. but we were never taught, um, my brother, my sister, and I, we were never taught that women could not do what they wanted to do. We were never taught that... Um, you know, color or race had anything to do with who a person was. And also, too, um, my uncle, my aunt's husband, uh, had a brother who was gay and had a partner. And it was always just treated as a matter of course. You know, it wasn't anything we talked about much in our family, but it was something that, you know, was just kind of like, well, people are people. I do feel like my parents were very good about not... um, you know, not trying to make me go along with the crowd, uh, or that my parents were not judgmental about how you're born. You know, it wasn't about what people might think, you know, and I, I'm really grateful for that. Your children, you know, you do have influence over them, whether or not you realize it, and the way you live your life um, really sets an example, I think for what they're comfortable with, what they're not comfortable with, and how they choose their values. And it doesn't necessarily go back to what you preach to them, but maybe just, you know, what you do in your day-to-day, you know, the choices that you make. And they see 
how you interact with other people and how, you know, which, what things are a big deal to you and what things are just sort of every day. And, you know, it's really about how people approach life and how they treat each other, you know, and, and how, um, you know, how if you want to be free to make your own choices that you, you know, you need to allow others to be free to make their own choices too. Thank you, Julia, for that beautiful tale. That story was curated by Bobby Badrisky with performance direction from Lee Stark and a sound design from Nick Kawahara. Julia writes a theater column for the Red Eye. Look for her work in the bright red boxes on the street or on redeyechicago.com. Julia just showed us what it means to know yourself. In our next story, we explore what it takes to learn who you are. Jay Adams Oaks has been a longtime Second Story collaborator. He also works for the website Chicago Artist Resource, engaging Chicago artists of all disciplines in discussion, networking, and growth within their fields. This story was also featured in the Second Story anthology titled Briefly Knocked Unconscious by a Low Flying Duck. Be sure to check it out in 2014. With his story titled Foreigner in a Straight Land, Second Story proudly presents Jay Adams Oaks. Men were terrible, awful, scary, sweaty, cocky, dangerous creatures. I mean, I I know I'm one of them. I I get that, finally. But before I came out of the closet, I felt like there were two types of people. Human beings and men, with a capital M. And me, I was just a human being, all lowercase letters. I mean, they were so foreign to me, throwing footballs and slapping each other on the back and not talking much. And when they did say something, they spoke in a code I had no translation for. It was like I was a foreigner in a straight land. So for a long time, I hid as best I could. Don't get me wrong. I still moved amongst the natives. I learned their ceremonies. I ate the local food. I even imitated their language and dated their women when necessary. So it's ironic that it took moving to a foreign country for me to find my native land. You see, I came out in Spain. It wasn't until a year later when I got back to the States that I found out that coming out was all the rage and there was even somebody named RuPaul singing about it. Everybody was bi-curious and gay-friendly and trying really, really hard (coughs) to find something gay inside of themselves. Like my friend Beth, who thought she might be feeling something for her female Spanish professor. Like, I mean, I can't stop thinking about her, Beth said, and I can't wait to get to her class. And sometimes I think maybe I could maybe kiss her. Well, you could be gay, Beth, but you know what lesbians do, right? Not really. She said, and when I told her the down and dirty, and I mean the down and dirty, she wrinkled up her face and said, ew, well, then you're not gay, Beth, because that's what lesbians actually love, gross as it may sound. Anyway, for me, before that fashion hit the streets, I'd spent most of my 20 years trying damn hard to stay in the closet. I had never met one openly gay person. 
and I'd only heard of the homosexuals before. But all those men were dressing like women or were priests and gym teachers touching little boys. And I wasn't any of that. I was just a guy who happened to really like other guys. So when I finally got to Spain, I was pretty much screwed. Here were these olive-skinned, dark, wavy-haired, passionate Marlboro men, capital M, strutting around so much they made my head woozy. But there was still a wall up between me and other guys. I had no flirting skills, certainly no dating skills, and no idea how other guys met each other. It made me feel even more foreign and made Spain feel even more surreal. It wasn't home. You know, my folks weren't there. My best friends were far away. Everybody was a stranger. For God's sakes, I was speaking a language so much, my brain hurt. Now, I got to tell you, I did fall in love there with Madrid. The city is more Chicago than New York or Paris, but it's not all gypsies and bullfights and sangria. It's also all-night bars and lazy afternoons in a cafe in a parque de tiro and moped rides through honking traffic jams surrounded by romantic old architecture. I'd almost say Madrid was my first true love, but that wouldn't be fair to Joe. You see, Joe was this guy I met on my abroad program. It's February 13th, 1991. There is no such thing as the internet or cell phones or laptop computers. And the song I rewind on my Walkman again and again is Freedom by George Michael. <laughs> okay, so I'm at Joe's birthday party and he gets a card with a shirtless guy on it. Hmm, I think. Interesting. The girls giggle, assuming everyone knows that Joe is out of the closet and my heart races. I try not to stare, but I study him in detail. He's cute, kind of quiet, sulky, but pretty much a regular guy. Is that even possible? Anyway, I wish him a happy birthday, shake his hand, and leave, because at this point, I can't really deal with him since I'm living in a really deep, dark, melodramatic hole of loneliness where no one else could possibly understand what I was actually going through. And actually, I was living in a neighborhood called Alfonso Trece with two guys just behind a highway billboard in a little brick house that we called the Shit Shack. It had no phone and a wood-burning stove we fed with old telephone poles. It ha- yeah, seriously. <laughs> it had a refrigerator in the living room and a gas tank for cooking and hot water. These tanks were called bombones because of their shape, like orange-wrapped chocolates. Almost a week after Joe's birthday party, I used that tank in the bathroom to try and kill myself. It finally made sense. The best option really was death. You know, it'd make everything easier on my family, my friends. There'd be no shame, no having to deal with the AIDS I'd surely get. And I stuffed newspaper in the cracks around the door and window, and then separated the line from the tank and sat in the bathtub and cried. And cried. But that shitty fucking house with too many holes in it and wind whipped through around through the cracks. Man, that pissed me off. But at least it got my sobbing to slow down 
I reattached the gas line, removed the newspaper, and thought, I guess I could talk to that Joe guy. He seems pretty normal for a man. So that night, I walked the four blocks to the closest payphone and called Joe. I practiced a casual tone as I dialed. Uh, Hey, uh, hey man, you're around tomorrow? Can I stop by? I mean, it's no big deal or anything. I just want to hang out. Now, I had never spent any time with him one-on-one before, but he didn't seem to mind and said to stop by the next day. God, I remember February 21st, 1991 so well. The colors, the sounds, the crisp air as I chain smoked for tuna cigarettes all the way to Joe's place. He met me at the door to his apartment building. Joe wore a red Gore-Tex jacket and brought his camera. Hey, he said. Hi, I said. I thought I'd take some pictures. You want to walk around the neighborhood? I could only nod because I thought I was going to die. What was I thinking? I couldn't do this. Jesus, shame is such a heavy coat to wear, isn't it? The short walk down Paseo de las Delicias felt like miles. Small talk had never been so painful, and words had never been a struggle for me, but the three I wanted to say made me feel like I was going to puke. I needed to sit down and rest my brain, so we found a little park tucked between some high-rise apartments. Joe and I sat on either end of the same bench. It was hot in the sun. Kids played and mothers watched, waving fans to cool their faces. Um, I said, and looked down. I I gotta tell you something. Between my feet in the red dirt, cockroaches ate bread left for pigeons. Joe snapped photos. Don't puke, I told myself. Don't puke. He took a couple shots of me. I didn't even know this guy, but he was about to become the most important person in my life, whether he wanted to or not, just by listening, just by smiling, just by understanding. Joe, I got to tell you, and I said it, and nothing changed. God, it sounds so dramatic, but the only surprising thing was how normal the world still felt. Kids still played. Cockroaches still skittered. Joe still smiled. I took the deepest breath I had ever taken, and then we talked. Or rather, I asked questions, and he answered them the best he could. The poor guy had hardly been out himself, but he still had experience. I remember asking him things like, so how do gay people know each other are gay? And in a couple, is one guy the man and the other one the woman? On and on, for, well, not just that night, but for days and days. Hey, I don't have to like leather, do I? (laughs) You see, the trick to coming out is that it's not just one step. I'm gay and everything's hunky-dory. I had only started a process that would happen for the rest of my life, a process of telling the truth and letting those knots slowly loosen. So there I was in Madrid, practicing being honest. Those knots loosening each time I said, I need to tell you something, I'm gay, and waited for a response. The very last person I finally told was my roommate, Chris. 
I was so afraid he was going to punch me in the face, I took him all the way down to the fancy McDonald's on La Gran Via because I figured he wouldn't make a scene in public. Instead, he said, so, what do you want, a trophy? Well, I got to thinking, you know, I mean, Chris was right. What did I want? It wasn't a badge of courage. I, I didn't do anything special. Being gay was just a tiny part of me, right? Like my hair or my shoe size, really. Anyway, Joe and I would eventually start dating, and we'd take a walk down the Paseo del Prado into the botanical gardens and decide to be boyfriends. And yes, finally, I would get rid of that damn virginity. I would tell Joe, it's time to get rid of it, and you are going to help me. <laughs> so during spring break on the southern coast of Spain, in a room with a bunk bed, while our unsuspecting friends snored in their rooms around us, the night before we took a ferry boat to Africa, escorted by flying fish and dolphins, we did it. It was good. That's not usually the story I like to tell. Usually, I like to remember the moment I knew things would get better. A week or two after that day in the park, before I'd come out to anyone else and before we'd started dating, Joe and I went on a trip with our study abroad program to Cordoba in an ancient Roman city in Andalusia. After a day of sightseeing and a late night of drinking, Joe and I snuck off to take a walk. We wandered outside the city wall across a bridge under a streetlight and along the river into a playground to sit on the swings. I started in my usual grilling. Have you told your parents yet? Do you know any Spanish gay guys? Do you think I look gay? <laughs> on and on, Joe patiently answering me, gently teasing me while this little bit of tension started to form between us. The city quieted down and was getting chilly, so we headed back to the hotel. Our shoulders bumped occasionally, and I felt okay. I mean, I, I didn't feel so bad all the time anymore. I was feeling normal, and I hoped his shoulder would bump mine again. We had separate rooms, so Joe walked me to mine to say goodnight. Before he le left, he leaned up and kissed me on the lips. Not hard or long, just enough. Then he looked me in the eyes and mumbled, that's just how gay people say goodbye. I mean, they kiss on the lips, I mean, even just friends. <laughs> and off he went. I stood there, leaning against the wall. My first kiss. Well, I mean, I had smooched girls before, like the rebel girls and the popular girls and smart girls and foreign girls, all with my eyes open, trying hard to like it. But this was different. This was the real thing. This is the feeling everybody else was talking about. Now I knew. Now I understood nectar and skin, electricity and blossoms and winks and nudges. That kiss explained romance novels and cliché lines. All that in an instant from one kiss. Like a bee sting or a splinter or a sneeze. That kiss... That kiss made me start to get life made me really want to live it and not be such a foreigner anymore. That was Jay Adams Oaks. 
I met with Jay Adams right before he ran out to visit his parents for the holidays. And we chatted about performing emotionally raw material in front of an audience. The irony of it was, is that by opening myself up to tell it, it became this public thing. And that people, friends of mine who didn't know what I'd gone through, now sort of saw the raw insides of what it was like. And I think the biggest thing it did was it opened up my parents to discuss it because they, I'd never told them that before. I, yeah, I'd never told them I I tried to commit suicide. And I think the thing is, is knowing about the suicide attempt Mm -hmm. that they didn't fully understand what I had gone through prior to telling them that all they knew was I just stepped into a room and made their life hell for a while. They didn't ever have the time to think about what had pushed me to get to that place, you know? And so it was good to go through that and for them to talk about what they went through too, you Mm -hmm. know? And it also got a dialogue going. I mean, that's what's so great about Second Story is it gets Mm -hmm. this dialogue going. The the story created dialogue within my life. It created a Second Story. I didn't plan on coming out in Spain by any means, but when I met the guy I'd eventually come out to and then date... I figured if it didn't work out telling him, I could always go back to the States and pretend I never did it. And, and so there was a safety in trying the new things. You're a different person. Mm-hmm. And for me, the really strange thing is, is that speaking Spanish, I feel like a different person. I don't express myself the same way. Um, before I went to Spain, I used sarcasm as a tool. And you, there is no sar- sarcasm in Spanish. It doesn't exist. And so I didn't know how to be funny and you know I started to have to push the boundaries of other things and I also think it everything felt like a chance to explore and learn so um like for instance my first year in Spain I just stayed within the the country and went every weekend I'd go to a new place and I'd try something new Mm -hmm. and um and I don't think we do that in our daily lives we don't say hey this weekend I'm gonna go have an adventure you know Right. So, um, we're going to go to Naperville. Like, what what are you going to (laughs) do? Exactly. Thanks to Jay Adams Oaks for sharing this story. This piece was curated by C.P. Chang with performance direction from Liz Rice and a sound design from Nick Kawahara. Jay Adams is finishing up his second novel. Look for it coming in 2014. It can take a lot of strength to know yourself, but it also takes courage to try something new. Our final story of this podcast explores what happens when somebody has the cojones to make a risky change. Jasmine Cardenas is an actress and teaching artist in the Chicago area and has told with Second Story for many years. With her story titled Out with the Old, Second Story is proud to present Jasmine Cardenas. giving the obligatory hugs and kisses to my familia, wishing everyone a happy new year, the party in our home would take off in full swing. <laughs> my tias y tios dancing classic Colombian cumbias and musica tropical blaring from the speakers, while little kids ran around trying to avoid getting stepped on by someone's stilettos. After midnight, 
As soon as midnight struck, I would sit on the couch and send page after page on my purple pager to all my friends, wishing them a happy new year. And then when pagers turned to cell phones, I would go lock myself in the bathroom to wish all my friends a happy new year. And always, I'd hear back from my friends what they were doing. And always, they were out having a great old time, having a blast. One year, in my late teens, I went shopping with my girlfriends for their New Year's Eve outfits to prepare for their night out on the town with their boyfriends. Lancome makeup, Chanel perfume, sexy chokers, crazy cute heels. Oh, total fashionistas. They were ready in their cute outfits for their fancy night out dinner and dancing. And then when I got home, my mom was waiting for me so that we could go out shopping for our family New Year's Eve event. Mommy needs a hen to make for the sancocho. You see, she's going to make the Colombian stew, sancocho. So we jump into my mom's station wagon. The frigid wind scrapes my cheeks as we head towards that store that smells of poultry B.O., feathers, sweat, and caca. <laughs> Pushing open the heavy front, old front door, the noise inside the place is this mixture of squabbling and feather movement and beaks tapping at the cages and people placing and taking orders and the butchers wearing that disgusting white apron stained with blood. Ooh. I stand near the cages as my mom checks out the cages and the chickens, beaks, feathers, weight, scaly legs. Las gallinas are jumping all over each other, trying to avoid the big hairy hand of the butcher as he goes into the cage. He pulls one out. Feathers are flying everywhere and, 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 and it's making all this noise and he walks to the back. And then I hear a big whack. The butcher comes back with a headless fowl, wraps it up into white paper, put some tape on it, and out we go. While sitting in my mom's car, waiting for her to warm it up, I ask in the stillness of the cold, Mommy, can I go out for New Year's this year? Everyone's going out to this party, and I never get to go out. Do you think I could go out for New Year's just this one time? Please? Jasmine, el año nuevo es un día de familia. Usted sabe que siempre estamos juntos. ¿Cómo le vas a hablar a la abuela si no estás en casa? Jasmine, New Year's Eve is a family holiday. We are always together. And how are you going to talk to your grandmother if you're not at home? You see, we always welcome the New Year's together. And so... At my house, when midnight strikes, everyone hugs and kisses around the room, and then one of my aunts runs off to dial the phone to Cali, Colombia. Everyone then takes turns walking up to the phone and speaking very loudly to mi familia in Colombia, and most importantly, to get the blessing from my abuela, my grandmother. All my life, I've pressed the phone hard to my ear to hear my abuelita. Nombre de Dios, abuela. In the name of God, abuela. And she always replies, Que la Dios me la bendiga. Que la Virgen me la acompañe y que mi Dios me la bendiga. May the Virgin be with you and may God bless you. It's tradition. 
And the phone call is happening at the same time as the living room is blaring with Spanish music and salsa and everyone's dancing to old cumbias. It's unheard of that I would not be at home for this very important conversation. So, the talk ends there. In a huff, I sink back into the cold passenger side of my mother's Oldsmobile, feeling sorry for myself. Every year was the same. I watched my older brother go through it, and then for years it was my turn. Your friends call, plans are made, everyone's going out, but you can't go. The night is spent sulking on the couch. You'd still have to help clean up the house, put the toys away, dust, vacuum, mop, go up to the attic, bring down the box with the streamers, the horns, the hats, the decorations, and then tape everything up. The doorbell would start ringing around 8 o'clock. That empty house would start filling up one familia at a time. The regulars, my aunts and uncles, my primos, my uncle Didier, my tia Yolanda, the Moreno family, and then any special guests from La Iglesia, our church, or school, or maybe a recent arrival to the country. Turning to the TV, though, you could see that our family tradition of being at home at midnight was not the tradición for everyone else. Dick Clark, fancy dresses, sparkling jewelry, statuesque models saunter across the screen. And then a ball drops and a crowd explodes in excitement and gyrates the night away. When I hit 21, I was set on being out with the real New Year's Eve crowd. <laughs> you know, not in the bathroom calling my friends. I was home from college. And my girlfriends, Lisa and Ali, were home too. And they were ready for a good night out. We scored some tickets to a big New Year's Eve bash. I broke the news to my family, to my parents. We're in the kitchen. Mommy and papi are drinking cafe. I open up my mouth, but nothing comes out, just like yesterday. My mouth is dry. I feel panic. This is the perfect time to tell them because they're calm, and my brothers aren't home. <clears throat> I gulp down some raisins and blurt out, Mommy, Papi, Ali and I got some tickets to go off for New Year's Eve, and I'm in college, and I live away on campus at school, and so I'm an adult now, so I think I'm old enough to go out on my own. <laughs> my dad pipes up. El año nuevo es un día de familia, Yasmin. <laughs> y por allá hay solo hay borrachos. New Year's Eve is a family night, and out there there's just a bunch of drunks. And then my mother. Y es muy peligroso por allá. And it's very dangerous out there. My mom and dad and I go back and forth for a little while about it. And then mommy looks at papi. They shake their heads. The tension in the room is stiff. Bueno, si quieres ir, if you want to go then. It was their way of giving in. <laughs> the day draws near, I wish I could get a limousine, you know, so we could go to the party and pull up to the red carpet. I imagine cameras and reporters checking out our outfits. I envision designer gowns and long, sexy gloves. 
walking into a crystal chandelier room with champagne flutes, crystal, getting checked out by semi-famous local celebs, and flirting back, and then tasting hors d'oeuvres from penguin dress servers, dancing to a big 14-piece band, and hobnobbing with a different class of people. <laughs> Getting ready for the big night, I wear my semi-sheer, shimmery, black lace top with a peekaboo bra, sexy skirt, and delicious, gorgeous black heels. I curl my playful short hair, and I make sure my jewelry is shiny and fun. Lots of cubic zirconia, so I can catch the lights. The girls come to my house, and we leave together. Everyone is all dialed up. Walking out the front door, my aunt arrives. Visibly she upset, she says, Pero como se va a ir, Jasmine? What do you mean you're leaving, Jasmine? No vas a decirle a su mamita feliz año nuevo? You're not going to wish your grandmother a happy new year? I'll call her tomorrow. With my girlfriends and my black and silver boa, we head out of Roscoe Village. My old putt-putt is cold. Unfortunately, my heater is broken, so obviously a limo ride is out of the budget. Arriving at the Hyatt O'Hare Hotel, there are tons of people dressed up. <laughs> we didn't get the more expensive tickets with dinner. <laughs> So we're arriving after dinner for hors d'oeuvres, desserts, beer, wine, you know, fancy music, the pate. Ooh, hungry, we see the food table. We rush up. The offerings had all been picked over. Ice with empty beds of lettuce, where something potentially delicious once sat. Broken pieces of bruschetta, some rolls. I scrape out some dip. But sitting at our high top, listening to Frank Sinatra classics, I'm drinking my amaretto stone sour and <laughs> checking out the crowd. Strange array of clothing choices. Flower dresses for church on Sunday and then leather outfits from the alley <laughs> and everything in between it kind of reminds me of a high school party in a gymnasium you know when people group together in corners the acne faced nervous Nellies the cool cats from the burbs the loud lycra dress crew and the divorced mid 30 40 I noticed that among the older women, there are these men swerving in and out, in and out, trying to make their moves like salesmen trying to pitch a product. And then the music changes to more techno style beats. So the younger crowd, we invade the dance floor, shaking our tail feathers. We keep our eyes peeled for the hotties. 
but none pop out. Unfortunately, the DJ sucks, the crowd is eh, and the pariah of old men that reek of too much alcohol has reached us. Un, dos, tres. Ricky Martin's living la vida loca. La, la, la. Un, dos, tres. Ooh, it's the first Latino song of the night, and so I am dying to dance. So I say yes to the one guy who didn't seem like that old or scuzzy. The girls give me that, are you sure you want to do that look? And I say, come on, I'm going out. He clearly has no rhythm because he strikes the matador pose and does a lot of clapping and spinning me around in circles around him. He spins me and spins me into his arms and then grabs me close. His bad breath is hot on my face and I push back away from him and get totally Latina on his ass. He doesn't have a chance. My hips are moving at a speed that he hasn't known since his youth. And I bust out my flamenco moves and my arms. My fingers are moving around. And that song ends and I fly out of there relieved. The girls are cracking up. (laughs) Smooth moves, Jazz. Yeah, he's a keeper. We decide to dance only together. As the night gets closer, the hour draws closer to midnight. The music picks up in intensity, but the DJ sucks and he keeps missing off the rhythm. And then the countdown starts. 10, nine, eight. The TV screens flicker with other Chicago parties and I wave my boa. Hey, three. Drunk people around me start shoving. Some tall, sweaty guy gives me a bear hug and practically shoves my faces in his armpit. Lisa's arms fly up to her chest to, to protect herself from the, some roaming hand that's trying to cop a feel. And I watch Ali ward off any invaders with the balloons, pushing them up around her, throwing himself around her frantically. We got off the dance floor. Standing in line for a drink, I'm wondering, really? This is it? At five foot 12, Lisa is the most statuesque person in the room, and Ali's the best dressed person. I abandoned my familia for this? To get hidden by balding men? How did I end up in this ghetto version of a gala? Oh, a hot flash of anger pulses through my body, landing in a hollow bed of disappointment in my gut. Let's go. We jump back into my icebox car. All three of us are starving. We should have gone to that Eddie and Jobo bash. <sighs> At least then we know what to expect. Driving back home, we figured the party would be dying out. But when we got there, all the lights were on and the windows are steamed up. Y la sonora tropicana was blaring out the speakers. (laughs) Whoa! 
walking up the front porch in the dead of winter, my mom's cocina, her kitchen greets my nose. I open the door. Bodies are twirling, sweating, feet moving to the sounds of timales y las congas. <laughs> my parents and my tias look at me. ¿Qué pasó? I can feel myself turning red. It was just a bunch of strangers. We're starving. En un dos por tres, my mom has plates of food in our hands. Mm, and we're digging into cuerito, salty, crunchy, toasted pig skin, meat, rice, y tostones, salty, fried plantains. Someone else passes out buñuelos y natilla, fried dough with a milky, thick, slightly cinnamony flavor, slide down your throat, natilla. And then a chorus of joyful voices sing out, Cali! Lisa gets pulled out to the dance floor by my brother. Ali and I put down our plates of food and join the fun. This is always my favorite part of our parties. My familia forgets about the stresses of life and sweats it out. <laughs> Mommy and papi, ooh, jamming with their fancy foot and syncopation. That footwork is awesome. My tias showing off their new turns. People that I have known all my life, tangled up in the heat and the beat, singing beloved songs of their bello país, Colombia! And then someone grabs me by my hand and twirls me around. It's that one lady's cute son? Total caleño! He's got that hip movement that harmonizes to la clave and that cute flirtatious dimpled smile. He knows it. <laughs> My heart races as I'm trying not to trip as he expertly twirls me around leading me in the dance room that is our living room. <laughs> Lisa's towering height brings me back to the present. <laughs> she yells out, Who needs techno when you got salsa? Jazz, you were holding out, girl. <laughs> we bust out laughing. She's right. We should have never left. Eva! That was Jasmine Cardenas. Jasmine met me in the Second Story Podquarium to talk more about her family and how she plans to host the New Year's Eve party this year. The very first memory that I have of New Year's Eve um, or the holidays in general uh, was has always been this, falling asleep on a, on a couch that's, or a bed that's full of coats while people are swirling and music is blaring around me. And that's always been my memory. And then the very first time I went to Colombia as a little girl, it was... I, that's that's the memory I have is of dancing. But the dancing was always there. The loud music was always there. The family and friends coming in at all hours and leaving at all hours. I mean, in Colombia, the party goes three days. And here we just do one long night. <laughs> so when the sun comes up, it's time to go home. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but in Colombia, like, people just keep coming. And, like, some people may go off and take a nap. And then other people will just keep partying. And it's it's like three days. <laughs> 
And I just, you know, when I was a teenager and then into college, I just kind of wanted to experience what I was seeing on TV and what my friends were doing. Mm -hmm. And I didn't realize it was not nearly as awesome. (laughs) It stunk. Well, and it wasn't even just that it fell flat, but that I realized that the, the holiday experience for me, my parents and my family, is a really important part of it. So... If I had been at a party that was actually amazing, not the dive I went to, but if I had gone to one that was actually amazing, I think I still would have felt a pang of loneliness and it would have still fallen below the level of awesomeness because my parents weren't there, my brothers weren't there, my aunts and my uncles and my cousins and the morenos. You know, like my family, extended family, is, is a really important part of the tradition. Growing up, whenever we would fight, my mom would tell us, you know, Jasmine, usted tiene que cuidar a su hermano. You have to take care of your brother. You have to love your brother. And when my brothers would bust on me, that my mom would come in with the same line. Ustedes son familia, your family. Y siempre tenemos que estar juntos y unidos. So we always have to be together and united. But for, so for me, family is really important because uh, it, it helps to define who I am. And I didn't realize that until I started getting older and started figuring out who I am and what I lo- value. We always had salsa and music and great food, um, homemade food that my mom would slave in the kitchen, you know, to make. But she's gotten so good at it that she can host a giant party with just a few hours prep. And I'm amazed. I don't know how she does it, but she's amazing. But I think that's, you know, years and years of throwing mm-hmm. these parties that she's just got it down. So hopefully... Is, is she helping you this year or is it just you in the kitchen this year? Oh, no. If I was the only one in the kitchen, it would be a miserable experience <laughs> for all involved. Those eating and those trying to enjoy as well as me making. No, I, I couldn't do it without my mom and my aunts. Thanks to Jasmine for that story. This story was curated by Molly Each with performance direction from Thrissa Hoditz and a live sound design from the Harold Washington Trio. For more information about Jasmine's upcoming projects, visit her Facebook page at Jasmine Cardenas Creates. When did you choose to make a change? What were the consequences? Who did it hurt? Who did it help? Was it worth it? When you're forming your resolutions for 2014, remember to keep those questions in your heart. You can always reach me for a comment on this or any other Second Story podcast at ozzy at secondstory.com. Be sure to follow Second Story on Twitter at Second Story or on Instagram at Second Story Chicago to get behind the scenes of our curation process. If you like this podcast, be sure to rate and review us on iTunes so more listeners can find and hear this work. Second Story podcasts are brought to you in part by the Gaylord and Dorothy Donnelly Foundation, the City Arts Program, the Chicago Community Foundation, part of the Chicago Community Trust, and the Arts Work Fund. Second Story podcasts are produced by Eric Hazen, with special thanks to Sherry Pentamone and C.P. Chang. I'm Ozzie Totten, and this is Second Story. Happy New Year.